0: Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back. Tavis Killian here, and I am recording this a bit early as I'm headed to Iowa for the weekend. So that is the neck of the woods where I grew up, and I plan to drive out for a few days. So this is actually being recorded on Thursday the 4th. But this is the episode of Monday Madness for Monday the 8th. So I hope nothing crazy happens over the weekend. Uh, news-wise, I would invalidate my data and stories. But I will tell you I put $10,000 on the Buccaneers winning. I'm just joking. I don't have that kind of money to bet willy-nilly, but that either got you super stoked for my win or mortified for my loss, but excited to see how the Super Bowl plays out. I know you didn't come here for my practical jokes. You came here for the data and the news stories like you do every week, so let's dive right into it. First up with our statistics, we've got the WTI pricing, and at the time of writing this podcast, it was priced at $56.46 per barrel. I hope that bull run continued through the weekend. Thanks to the extended production cuts from Saudi and other sectors resuming their typical consumption of oil and gas, we've seen prices climb and climb. Now, I want to let you in on a little secret. Production in the U.S. isn't returning at a very aggressive pace. Some of it isn't returning at all as companies sell some assets in an attempt to pay down debt to people who can't quite produce because the cost of production may not be supported in that region. Alright, I I can hear some of you groaning, that's no secret, everybody knows that. Well, lots of people in the energy industry might know that, but I would wager that the general public still, as majority, does not know. We continue to eat away at inventories, produce what little we still can under the regulations and price environment that we have, although price is increasing, and we deplete our wells that are online. Thanks to a certain moratorium, activity will be even further suppressed for another 45-ish days or so, and I suspect that will further increase the price. I know fundamentals don't always factor into markets the way we would expect, But energy sources almost always skyrocket in price as supply plummets. Look at Spain with their recent snowstorm they had. Gas prices in the region more than doubled in just a few days. Warm homes and refrigerators are very popular luxuries that we all enjoy, especially in these months of January, February, and March. Most people wouldn't turn them off even if gas prices increased about 25%. It's because they're considered inelastic, or more informally, people will consume a similar amount even with large price differences. But... That is an economic lesson for another day. I'm just predicting a further increase in prices, both oil and gas, thanks to a decrease in supply in response to Biden's policies. A stance where Petro has maintained for months, but hey, that's lots of doom and gloom. I'm not mad that prices are at 56.46. Next up, the rig count. And, you know, I'm not quite sure. I-, I am recording on Thursday, and Baker Hughes typically releases the reports Friday morning at which time I will hopefully have made some good distance from Colorado on the first legs of my journey. What I can tell you is that I stand by my prediction that the rig count should hold for a little while longer before we see decline. For example, two rig counts have been released since Biden announced his 60-day moratorium, and in that time, we've seen 11 rigs go up in the U.S. Of course, some people did prepare for this by filing for many more permits in advance, but I feel the shock will have to come soon, and I've got a story a little bit later to support that, so stick around. I predict the report will show a small build, uh, the one that comes out Friday the 5th, for maybe one or two rigs, and I highly encourage you to find yourself some data to test my prediction. Baker Hughes, like I mentioned, is a fantastic spreadsheet that can tune into a decent amount of detail that you can find if you simply Google rig count. Make a prediction yourself and check it out. Lastly, those inventories I had previously mentioned. Thankfully, I do have the numbers that are fresh for that, and I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is that the API reported a 4.2 million barrel drawdown as of the second. The bad news is that the EIA only reported a million barrel drawdown on the third. I know, as far as bad news goes, that isn't terrible, and we've reached a rather important milestone. If you were to look at the weekly report of crude oil inventories as compared to the five-year range, the line of the inventories over time has finally breached into the area covered by that five-year average. More simply, inventories in January started to be comparable to historical prices for the past five years, albeit at the high end of that range. To put that into perspective, we haven't been within this range since about April of 2020. If this continues, I think it only further supports my previous argument of increasing oil prices, so I am excited to bear witness to these next few weeks. Next, we have our stories. The first one I want to break into caught my eye based on the headline alone, which was... Solar firms vowed to prevent China forced labor and supply chain. Of course, this renewable article was published on oilprice.com and explained how 175 solar manufacturers and power companies, Tesla included, are saying no to forced child labor and boycotting rare earth metals and minerals sourced from China. Now, I want to be clear, I do not support child labor. I think that goes without saying Plenty of geopolitical issues going on in China right now, which I will not really be addressing. I just wanted to look at this theory from a logistical and economic perspective. So please keep that in mind. Now, I mentioned this article caught my eye, and I was excited to poke holes in the theory of this group. They call themselves the Solar Energy Industries Association, or SEIA, because I knew for a fact that a majority of rare earth metals and other necessary components for a lot of renewable energy tech is sourced from China. Unfortunately, before I got the chance of pointing that out, they pointed it out themselves. In a report that they published under the SEIA name, they estimated 50% of polysilicon alone, an essential component of solar panels and other renewable tech, is sourced from the Xinjiang region. That's 50% of the entire world supply from this one single region of China on only this element. The total they have produced since 2018 has quadrupled. If anything, this will further increase the cost of renewable technology production, although there is more supply, but if you're not going from China, you got to find it somewhere else, And that really shoots these companies in their own feet. While the intentions are positive, and quite frankly, great. I love that they don't want to support forced labor. This is going to significantly hurt renewable development in North America. I really do hope that they can find a cheap and ethical supplier, but unfortunately, I feel like you have to have either cheap or ethical at the present, not both. So hopefully we can find a way to overcome that, because that will severely limit the use of renewable energies within the United States, and I think that is the opposite direction that that industry wants to be going. Of course, this is the Rare Petro Podcast, so it is only fair I deliver some news that actually centers around oil. I know you've heard about the moratorium, but the Department of the Interior has issued an order that forces the BLM to send all drilling permits to top officials in Washington. Unfortunately, these permits, which had been previously approved by the BLM, were rendered invalid by the order. So, Naturally, the Department of the Interior revoked them, but promised that the companies would not be fined for any drilling they started, and asked that they refile so the permits could be properly reviewed. This is like signing up for a golf tournament, renting everything you need from the clubhouse, playing the first two holes, and the course owner telling you that the rules have been changed and you can no longer play with the clubs that you had rented from his very own employees that worked under him in his clubhouse. To top it all off, the owner promises you that you will not be fined for your incompetence, and that you can still play if he approves your rental of the same bag of clubs personally. Sounds a bit strange to me. Fortunately, at least some 33 wells have been approved by top officials since the moratorium, but that is a far cry from enough wells to supplement the ones already dwindling in production. Remember how I mentioned that at the start? All the pressure is here to push prices up, and we're seeing huge jumps already. The markets are reacting violent, and WTI price is accelerating towards 60. An incredibly volatile environment for sure, but it could just push prices even higher. If we stick on the subject of government, I'd like to revisit the infamous moratorium and New Mexico's response. Now, New Mexico is especially upset about this new drilling moratorium because it hits them a little bit harder than most. What do I mean by that? Well, 57% of all onshore oil and gas drilling that occurs on federal lands occurs in New Mexico. That's over half of federal onshore drilling that occurs in New Mexico alone. The API predicts that the moratorium threatens to eliminate $1 billion in state revenue and 62,000 jobs. New Mexico Congresswoman Yvette Hurrell won't stand for that. She plans to introduce the Protecting New Mexico's Jobs and Public Education System Act, which is a tough bill name to refute. She does raise a good point about the schooling, though. In 2021, one-third of the state's revenue came from oil and gas, and limiting that funding even for two months will greatly erode the quality of the public school system in the state. That is only one of the many sectors that oil and gas benefits through the taxes that they give back, so I really do hope that they can find a way to convince the Biden administration to ease up, because one-third is nothing to sneeze at. After all, the Ute tribe in the Uinta and Ure basins of Utah argued the same thing, saying, hey, this is how we make a lot of money, and they received exemption. Why shouldn't the state of New Mexico also be exempt for the same reasons? But I am afraid that is the end of our stories and therefore the end of our podcast. So please, if anything, I hope this sparks you to do your own research as well, even if it's just to prove me wrong with the rig count because I recorded this before I actually had those numbers. So go ahead, look those up. Sometimes I can't believe the things I say, but I try to deliver them as truthfully as possible with the information that I uncover. You can find more content on rarepetro.com in written or audio form, so there are plenty of resources for you to learn and grow more in this industry. This has been Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, and until I see you next time, take care everybody.